This episode is brought to you by Push Messaging God's Urban Airship. They can be found at urbanairship.com and by ThinkNear. Their location score platform delivers the most accurate location targeting available on mobile. Visit them at locationscore.com. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untethered.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. Uh, this is the place you come to each and every week. I don't know. Maybe you come here daily. Maybe you come here every hour. I don't know, but I appreciate it. But this is where you find out all the information that you need to know about the companies that are building things in the mobile space, the wearable space, the Internet of Things space, and the pervasive computing world. And today is no different, folks. Today is absolutely no different. Uh, we are all fascinated with this thing called the Internet of Things. We are. I know we are because everything is now connected. Everything has a node, an IP address. Everything's talking to something or trying to talk to something. And we have got a guy here in Sam Dunn, who's the CEO and co-founder of a company called Robin, who is right in the middle of this. And I want to talk to him about what he's doing with Robin, which is basically the connected, what he calls the quantified office, what they call the quantified office. Uh, and we're going to get into what Robin is. He works with his brother, who's his twin. Uh, he works out of Boston, and uh, they are talking about uh, the Internet of Things in a different realm from what you and I, I think, are talking about. And I want to get his perspective on that and also the history of the company and a bunch of other things. Going to bring Sam in right here. Boom. Sam, welcome to Untether.tv. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story, man. Hey, Rob. No, good. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, you know, I, um, I I love this. I mean, go to your website if you want to. Go to uh, it's, it'll be a long story, but if you go to uh, robinpowered.com, you'll see you'll see your brother who is you guys are twins, man. There is a certain level of symmetry. Uh, <laughs> symmetry that, is what you call it, eh? Us? Yes. Yeah. So uh, we've, uh, as I say, we've been genetic business partners for about twenty five years now, uh, and we've gotten good at this whole cooperation thing. Genetic. Business partners, I, I I love it, and uh, we're not supposed to mention who is older, so I won't. Will, I will not ask that question, but um, uh, you know, I, I do want to get into the dynamics of working with your brother, not only your brother but your twin brother, and and how that has an impact on your business, and also how you ended up liking the same stuff enough to be in business together. But before we do, let's talk about Robin, and I want to give you an opportunity to explain a little bit about what Robin is uh, as a business, and uh, then we'll get into the the history. Sure. So Robin, as you said, is pretty much our stab at what the smart office would look like. So uh, for really layman's terms, it's present sensing and automation for the office. So the idea that rooms know who and what is inside them. And when you know that, you can mix stuff together and make all sorts of cool recipes. And that's, I mean, the premise for this seems really simple. Like way back in the day, before there was, uh, you know, something called beacons, there was RFID tags. And the whole idea with RFID tags was to, you know, in, in an office space was to classify inventory, right? So your overhead projector is here, your computer's here, your laptop's here. Um, is this the evolution of that? Uh, how, how did this idea emerge? So funny you bring up RFID because that's exactly what we played with uh, professionally, of course, uh, for about two and a half years prior to Robin, which we got started uh, more full time and officially in the beginning of 2014. So up through that, we were doing a lot with RFID uh, from 
if you've ever been to Bonnaroo or Coachella with uh, those RFID wristbands. They're wicked, yeah. Advanced technology for the, for a, for a, a festival, right? Just you know, light speed technology. It yeah. dropped uh, counterfeit rates, something like ninety five percent. Amazing. The moment they did that, so obviously it was a no brainer. So we just to kind of why we were playing with that. We basically had this whole premise of we could use those, which stopped being useful when you walk through the gate, and add a little bit of the social media side of log in with your Facebook account, associate it to your wristband. And you could swipe that wristband throughout the venue to sign in. And speaking to what you just said about RFID evolving into all of this, yeah, uh, the difference is it's just been cheaper and cheaper. Um, RFID started as something where, you know, we always, when we're talking to people about what we're working on, people are like, oh, I was worked on this 20 years ago. But the difference, <laughs> the ultimate hipsters of tech um, worked on it before it was cool. So, but the difference is, is, you know, the costs have come down because it's more of a software play now, you know, Bluetooth and things on your phone and in your pocket already versus buying ranged scanners, which don't even get into that with me on, you know, the pricing of those from the uh, building an antenna to scan RFID bands around you. That was that was the thing is that you know you feel bad for those guys that were uh, so innovative twenty years ago because the technology was so prohibit prohibitive in cost, wasn't it? Like, and now it's not. It's coming down, but it's still even with RFID, it's still not glamorous. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars for yeah. a scanner that scans the size of a watermelon. <laughs> That's true. Right? And think about the infrastructure that like something like Walmart has, uh, who went uh, full RFID for inventory control, and then they look up. You know, as soon as they've implemented across all of their stores and, and there's much cheaper and much better, much faster and much more accepted technologies that are out there now that they're just like you can't commit to a platform, which is a challenge these days. I stand by the fact that I think that RFID belongs in the inventory space, yes. but I like to think that I'm a person, not a piece of inventory. So that's <laughs> where the, uh, the that I think that we're starting to split off a little bit more with beacons. I, I, it's fascinating. It's true. It's right. We aren't inventory, but we are really, you know. <laughs> You have inventory, which is your staff, right? You don't call them that. And if you're watching, uh, the best one, the best frame I've heard of that was uh, human assets human or assets. living assets. Living sorry, assets. okay. That's that's very corporate speak to the fact that you have people on premise. It is, yeah. And they leave, they go down the elevator every single day. Your assets walk out. Your, yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> But you know what? There is that that ability to quantify the people that work for you as 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 assets, and and uh, and part of what you do is really, I mean, you, you through Robin are putting people um, on on the network. Ultimately, what it is, and and uh, when you bring in a room and and a person and uh, or a couple of people and a, and a and a room, and then you bring in some assets like an overhead projector, whatever it might be. Um, that all of a sudden is now you're just basically an IP address, uh, uh, something on the node, and that's what that's what Robin ultimately does, doesn't it? It's basically predicated on the idea that a lot of uh, our environment in the real world has stayed pretty dumb, yes. and if you think about how you interact with most digital spaces like websites, you log in once and then it recognizes you when you return. But somehow for, you know, until recently, when you walk into a new space, you have to constantly remind it who you are and what your needs are every time you visit. So that creates a lot of wasted time. So from our whole lens, it's basically making the physical experience as digital as possible by removing that kind of on-ramp of getting started, stopping, or moving about through the day. 
So how did you, but I mean, what was the idea? Where did the, the genesis of the idea, where does this come from? Is it uh, that you, you worked in a big corporate office where you saw that this was a challenge? Did people come to you with this challenge? Did you observe this challenge? Was it just a great idea? So the thing we realized, um, so we spent a lot of time in the event space. We worked at a lot of large um, with our previous venture, which is what Robin was born out of, which was called One Mighty Roar. We did that for about four and a half years. And essentially, we did a lot of event space tech. So that's when we first caught the bug of with RFID bracelets, you could log into a space. And what would that mean? Then when we started to like really think about where we could go with this, it was we realized that we wanted to do something that didn't go away after a couple hours. And that's what events are. So there are brief windows in time where everything's great, but they're not persistent enough where you can motivate someone to download an app or you know wear your piece of hardware for a sustained amount of time. So we knew we wanted to end up on the phone, but we knew in order to do that, you had to offer something continually. So we basically looked at three different sectors, um, logging into spaces for the home, for retail, and for the office. Mm -hmm. And as you start to pick those apart, you'll see a lot of the Internet of Things beacon plays are circled around those first two. Um, smart home, largely security preferences, universal remote control stuff, retail, couponing, notifications, all that. But the one that's really left unattended and in many ways um, behind the curve from all the delights of consumer is uh, really the office. So. Mm -hmm. We selfishly spend a lot of time in the office, uh, and we've, over the years, really interacted with a lot of both architecture and furniture companies, where we started to get echoed um, from them the exact amount of time that was wasted around the office on stuff that you know, anyone else would just have no tolerance for in any other environment that they weren't being paid. So we, we set about what, what it would look like if there was a little bit less bullshit in the office, so to speak, which is kind of one of our guiding principles right now. Well, you have to get rid of the people to eliminate that, don't you? <laughs> did I say so, that out loud? No, I didn't mean that. I did not mean it. Sam, you don't have to answer that. <laughs> you don't have to answer that. But you're, you're right. I mean, I, I ran an office space. There were 75 employees. We had, you know, three or four or five boardrooms in the office space. And it was a, it was a pain, right? Um, but, you know, the scheduling aspect of it, uh, you're right. The room was pretty stupid, right? You put a whole bunch of people in there and the room gets smarter. But, but really, when you leave the room, it has no history. It has no understanding of what that meeting was about or what those people meant to that meeting, right? And is that, is that the approach that you took at it? Or I'm getting too philosophical here. So, yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's like if you think about, again, comparing like a website to a room, the website can track analytics, it can track how it's being used, it can better optimize the experience over time. And in the real world, it's one of those things that hasn't yet experienced that same thing. So you have people whose uh, real estate represents their best guess of how a space is being used, or in many cases, these places we're talking to send around an intern with a clipboard every couple hours to see the occupancy, how it's being used, and then they can reorient. 
Yes. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I, I like this approach because obviously you've given this some thought. I mean, the, the first two areas are the focus for every other company on the planet, right? Which is the uh, when, when you're when you're talking about the home or when you're, you're talking about retail. Right. So beacons are, are dominant in these places. Internet of Things are, are being pushed through that um, those two channels pretty effectively. But you're right. I mean, the guys who are building the tools that are going out there into the homes and into the retail industry work in an office that is not optimized for the use and is being ignored ultimately for in this industry which is which is pretty cool i like i like that approach um but you you guys have this like you you call this the quantified office right and and i've seen uh you know uh, words on your website they call it rooms that react so you I mean what's the benefit of this you know so somebody walks in you get four people in a meeting in a room they leave you understand i understand like you you get usage statistics for the room but but there's got to be something more than that 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 would make people pay for the service so if you talk about, um, so there's actually a couple different things. There's a short term, long term, and it depends on the size. So long story short is that. No, 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 removal... no. Sam, we don't do short stories here. Have you watched an episode here? These are all long stories. So let's do the unabridged version. Which <laughs> <Okay>. we'll call... <laughs> all, right. all right. So let's really dig in here. So the idea is, okay, so there's the real estate play, right? And in a non-hyperbole setting, Yes. We're talking to one organization that works directly with a place that has 8,000 conference rooms across the country. They know for a fact that uh, there is a lot of complaints about the conference room availability, but they can't necessarily hone in to where those complaints are happening. So their current proposal on the table is that they're going to build 4,000 more conference rooms. <laughs> the funny part about this story was when it was being told to me, they were unable to find an actual room to hold the meeting to discuss whether or not more conference rooms. So as we're talking to more and more people that manage these like huge amounts of real estate, they have no idea what their utilization is. They don't know whether or not that really decorative nook in the corner of their office is actually getting any use other than just kind of how they feel it's being used. So there's the real estate play. Um, in the short term, it's really a matter of... Um, cutting back the wasted time. And if you think about it from a strictly like, there's the employee happiness angle, which I don't want to downplay, but that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of like squishy feely, but it actually does quantify in a big way for the HR department. Less complaining, less headaches, feels like a snazzy forward thinking office. But the real one is reducing the amount of time people waste looking for each other and spaces. And Steelcase is a good example of this. Steelcase is one of the big furniture companies. They run a workplace survey every year. And the thing that they've really taken away from it is 40% of people waste 30 minutes a day looking for places to collaborate. And if you just sit with that alone, I think there's that's a good on-ramp for what we're doing. Oh, my God. 40% of people waste 30 minutes a day looking for places to work together? In the office, yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So... Uh, you know, my, my mind kind of wanders a little bit here when we when we talk about this, because, you know, obviously a lot of us who are listening to this are either involved in a big office space like that or and we've all gone through this pain. But um, do you do you think a little bit down the road and maybe this is too early in the conversation to have this, but I, I got to get it out. Do you think a little bit down the road is that, you know, how um, there's going to be trends of excess inventory of boardrooms? So do you try to bring that to light as well and say, hey, listen, you know, you could you could rent these out to people who who need to borrow your boardrooms and, and turn your boardrooms into revenue instead of having them as a cost? Like it's a dumb 
terminology, but everybody uses it. I'm going to use it here for a second, but you know, basically becoming the Uber for boardrooms. Is that terrible? Sorry. Is that terrible? <laughs> I'll I'll forgive you in time. Okay, um, that's terrible. I know. So there oh. are see. Long story short, there's two different things on this. Yeah. Um, Again, long story short, I know that's a frowned upon phrase. It is. So there is an organization called Liquid Space, which tackles uh, a very similar issue, which is yep. the idea that like there are meeting rooms in hotels, there are meeting rooms in offices. You should be able to through, have a network of access to those. But that's great. On the so there's people like that that you know when we can bring in a presence sensing element, we can give a real time inventory of whether or not the room is occupied rather than was it planned on being occupied. Right. On the flip side, you know, we talked to a bunch of organizations and I think two good example or a good example is anyone who works with coworking because those people have a variety of companies that are vying for pretty scarce resources and you know, a good example one of them is a large agency in town. They um, they have coworking people in 20% of their office. They're not sure whether or not the coworking people are using 100% of their resources as well as some of the others. So they don't know what, how much real estate should be directly proportioned for their own company versus the coworking. And they have no way of tracking that. So, sure, yeah, yeah, you absolutely could use this to kind of repurpose and have less static spaces. So, I mean, I, I, I just look for revenue opportunities, right? Is that you might find that, that company that had, you know, whatever, 10,000 or 12,000 office spaces across the country, um, instead of adding 4,000, they can turn 4,000 into uh, burstable boardrooms for people to pay for uh, on an as-need-be basis. But I, I think that, like, you need the data in order to be able to do that. Um, and so I'm going to bring it right back down here to the to the foundation of the idea, the formation of the idea is that did you walk me through this process? Did you build this first and then try to sell it? Did you sell it before you built it? Did you talk to somebody about this before you went down the path? Did you work with customers to be able to build this, uh, build your first prototype? Yeah. So we um, we've been exploring this line of thinking for with the RFID bands for about two and a half years. And it wasn't until fall of 2013 uh, when we really started to start building around with the intention of using Bluetooth rather than RFID. Um, now, One Mighty Roar, which was the digital product company uh, that this was born out of, had a storied history of being able to be self-funded and profitable throughout its lifespan because we were really good at finding people that cared about the same stuff that we wanted to build. So a lot of the early iterations of this and some of our earliest customers were people who um, wanted a feature that we wanted to build and in a way indirectly sponsored the, uh, the first draft of it. Uh, so we kind of future sold a few people, but yeah. it turned out in the long run. So that's how you did it. But now, uh, I mean, it, you said that uh, One Mighty Roar had the ability to remain, uh, you know, independently funded, right? Funded on revenue. Um, so when, you, when you're looking at, at something like Robin, is this an independently funded company? Are you, you know, can it be? Um, or is this a, uh, you know, are you looking for uh, venture investment? So we actually closed a seed round uh, back over the summer. Uh, and that was our first time ever raising. Uh, it, was, it was a fun, fun adventure uh, coming out of almost five years of being, uh, 
you know, fiercely independent. Yes. It was it was certainly an interesting transition. Uh, the fun part was that obviously our entire team of uh, fifteen folks came over to Robin with us uh, upon getting the funding. So it was uh, kind of like turning a battleship from the having to focus on one part client work, one part product, to being able to all of a sudden think about what was best for the product versus what was best for keeping the lights on. What, uh, I mean, what was the process like raising your first round? I mean, you know, you don't, was it, was there anything shocking? Was it, did it surprise you? Was it fast? Was it painful? I think that, so we were coming at it. So we're a little bit different than the average. Well, so everyone's a beautiful snowflake and I acknowledge that, (laughs) but you know, we, we were a 15 person team going into a seed round and that is certainly not your average um, size company for that for that idea. Um, we, you know, we we thought we were in a in a, a pretty okay place, uh, given that we had a little bit of a track record uh, running a company beforehand. We had the team, so that eliminated a lot of the risk of hiring and firing because you botched some some trajectory. Um, we've been very fortunate to have some really great advisors. Um, people who have exited companies anywhere from you know tens of millions to over a billion, uh, and with that we were we got a lot of really good intros. And I would say that the network of people that supported us with the early intros made it a much more pleasant experience. And I was able to talk to way more people than I think ordinarily I would have been able to had I not known. The advisors that we had but how did you okay so that, that's huge like 15 a 15 person team transitioning into essentially what is becoming this kind of quantified office company in robin um did you lose people did you have to lose people was that a tough transition yeah so i think that this was something that you know investors asked right because here you have this person who worked on two years of agency stuff and then that kind of evolved into 80% product, 20% agency, but really whatever it took to keep the lights on. Now saying that they want to do 100% product. Mm-hmm. And we, we've always been a very heavily engineer-focused team. So you know we weren't riddled with, let's say, the account manager roles that exist in agencies. Like and marketing and all that stuff. You didn't, right. you didn't have any of those. Yeah. We did. And, you know, but I do think that we've... we've We've hi- we've lost people for the the right and the wrong reasons. Uh, the wrong you know wrong reasons being stuff that you know the business is not where um, where we're both headed together. Yeah. Uh, and you know those are things that we were at our peak in the agency days. We were nineteen, and you know once we really focused up on what the the product was going to be, we knew we had to get a little bit farther down, and you know kind of it was both natural and some some accelerated to get to the 15. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a, a transition, right? Is that you sign on for agency and then during that period of time, you transition into a product. There's always casualty and, and uh, whether, you know, you're going in two different directions and that's usually what happens. But uh, I'm interested in, in your advisors. You said that they, these guys have exited from like millions to billions of dollars. How, how did you meet them, man? So... And where are they and where can everybody else meet them? (laughs) So we learned, okay, so I have this whole thing about advisors and I think that a good advisor should strive, uh, you should have a couple of different types of advisors. An advisor that can 
that is a couple years ahead of where you are, and yes. then an advisor that's where you want to be farther out than that. And it's hard to say exactly how many years out that would be. So the goal is to constantly be stocking your pipeline of mentors and advisors so that one day your advisor becomes your peer and then you guys kind of can find a new set of advisors and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, one of our, you know, we, our very first office was owned by a gentleman um, that, you know, for, for many years we were, he, we were doing the same business and he'd been doing it for longer. Our businesses both evolved in very different directions and thus becoming peers. Uh, and then we found kind of our next one. So, so the, the number one thing I would say is I put myself in scenarios which allowed me to stand out. And I, what I say specifically is we were, we've always picked locations that don't necessarily lend itself for what we're doing. So we started in Holyoke, Massachusetts. That is known for being uh, the first of all, that's in Western Massachusetts. It's and for, the sorry, capital. You, you of, cut off there for a second. It's being known. It's 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 known for what? It's the volleyball birthplace, okay. and it is also in the seventies. It was the arson capital of the United States. All right, because you had all these old mill buildings that were getting burned down for the insurance money. So <laughs> what it seems like a good spot to work. And no, it was bumping. No, so what happened? Really cheap real estate. A lot of bigger organizations were starting to put their data warehouses out there, but there were very few tech companies. So what you did was you basically circled up with the five or six people that were also in tech and then did it together. Also, at the same time, we shared without the um, intention of getting anything back. So we started a really popular blog um, called Build Internet, which between 2008 and 2011 was one of the top 10 web development blogs, and I think number 8,800 on Alexa back when that was a big deal. So we just basically shared what we were up to. People started caring and listening. Uh, and then when we made the decision to move out to Boston, we were following more of a New York's uh, Brooklyn agency model, but doing it in Boston. So we got to stand out a little bit more with our style, which is normally much more developer focused here. We had a lot more design and kind of social and marketing aspects to us. So we got noticed really quickly in that way. Um, yeah. And some of them are just dumb luck. I'll be honest to tell you. Uh, one of our, some of our best advisors, they, you know, they reached out to us originally because they wanted something designed. And then you just treat them like Great normal people. You treat them like normal people. Yeah. You don't treat them like assets, right? Um, you know, it, it's funny that way is that um, what what was the blog that you guys that you ran? It was called Build Internet. OK, so that was Zach, my twin brother, and I's first um, real adventure. And we started it with the intention of making something that was going to be better than a normal summer job. And so we got a 160 square foot space uh, for 300 bucks a month in Holyoke, Mass, and we decided we were going to write a different blog post every day about whatever we were learning for web design and development. So we just did that. And it turned out we started to be able to pay with ad revenue for the $300 a month office. We made comparable to us a compelling Staples job uh, or something like that. And then when we went back to school, we 
because that was during the summer, we suddenly had more and more people reaching out wanting some custom stuff. And that's actually how we, we met one of our earliest um, advisors who has, we've known for, for several years now. Uh, and he's now, he started an agency called Carrot Creative. His name is Mike Germano. And he eventually sold that to Vice and is now the chief digital officer of Vice. And if you've seen them in the news, they're doing pretty okay. Yeah, they're doing so, fine. Yeah. They're doing okay. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're doing just fine. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating this, the, you know, obviously you and your brother are very entrepreneurial, right? From the, from the get go. Um, how early on in your life did you guys realize two things? One, that you pretty much didn't want to work for somebody else. And two, that you guys could work together uh, as a unit um, being family, which is tough. Yeah. So I would say that up through Sophomore year of college, I was still describing my ideal out-of-school gig as some sort of marketing thing because that's what I went to school for. Yeah. We both went to the same school, University of Hartford. And the way I would describe my ideal gig is one day I want to des- uh, make a commercial that will be on the Super Bowl. Here. That, was my, that was my big bar of success. So we realized that sophomore year we d- we'd never planned on going to the same school we realized that you know we liked computers and we were kind of good at certain aspects of them um and it really didn't feel like a i didn't stop looking for jobs out of school until probably end of junior year because we had hired our first two people and it started then you decided being, that you 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 weren't going to go look for a job so that was the catalyst yeah. for you to say, hey you know what we've yeah. hired these guys i guess i could take my resume off of linkedin <laughs> well, well, so I we looked at college like this bubble, right? So it's a get farther ahead or don't, and then you can see where you end up. And we took our first uh, paycheck the same day we t- got our diploma. Sweet. So we basically, because a, co- a college student doesn't really have that much overhead unless you really make a compelling case for a new Xbox or whatever, right. uh, there's really not, not that much that you have. Uh, obligated to so kind of this idea of setting yourself up for success after the bubble pops is exactly what we did oh so i mean i i that's a great approach um but you guys you just did you fall into this or did you guys end up being uh, you know deciding uh on purpose that you and you could work together because because it's it's one thing to be to live together all your life and it's another thing to then um be mistaken for each other all your life. And then it's another thing to then, you know, try to forge your own identity all your life and then to come into business together where like you're the CEO, he's the CTO. I mean, was it difficult or was it just a natural flow? And I'm asking this purely for my own benefit because as you know, I have, I have twins as well and I'm interested yeah. in this. I would say that, you know, there are, it was a, it was a process that took a while. Uh, to, to learn to interact with each other from both a personal standpoint and a professional standpoint. Like to respect each other, right? The guy that- Well, you, I've you... always respected. I would say that the difference is, it's like we both knew that like we were capable, the other one was capable, and we just pushed each other. And I would actually say that, you know, it was a really good check because you have kind of a constant gut check of one other person who's riding shotgun with you. and. Fortunately, we've been added, we've added two other great business partners who got checked me every day, and one of them <laughs> went to our, our high school as well. So 
you know, we have a good blend of people and that support system all the way through where, you know, we could teach and learn from each other. It really kind of compounded where I'm twice as efficient. And, you know, this reflected from the personal standpoint, people see us interact and we don't complete sentences. We'll say keywords and we'll each get stuff done. So we delegated to each other. Um, And that worked really well. And, you know, that plus the idea that, you know, twins as a, as a, a novelty has certainly gotten us in front of some people <laughs> that ordinarily wouldn't. And, you know, we won the genetic lottery in that regard. And I'll be the first to tell you. Uh, I love that it. certainly helped. Twins as a marketing tactic. <laughs> we don't overplay that one That's actually good. anymore. But, uh, you know, it certainly did help with the blogging days. So <laughs> if you felt lazy, your brother could fill in. If he felt lazy, you could fill in. Um, how did did it really help you early on? I'm just, I, you know, just from a purely interest, you don't have to go into it. But I mean, did being a twin really do help? Did it help you move things faster? Yeah, people didn't have they had they could just say, oh, those web designer twins, okay. and then people would know who they're talking. So it's like about. a brand identity, right? There was yeah, it was a big brand thing, and that was where it really drove the blog in many ways. I would like to think also because of quality content <laughs> and compelling interviews, but uh, you know, it certainly didn't help or didn't hurt. Uh, that we were twins. I need a twin. If I get a twin, then Untethered.tv will take off. A partner in crime. A partner in crime. I don't have a twin. Um, I, one last question about your brother. Maybe two. Uh, you don't have to answer either of these, but uh, how did you become CEO and he became CTO? And did you ever swap uh, dates? Okay. All right. So you're allowed one twin question. Okay. Uh, and it's the, you know, the classic ones are swapping dates, swapping classes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If I punch you, does he feel it? Uh, these are all <laughs> things I've heard at length. I'm just interested, so, you know? We have never swapped dates. Okay, good. We swapped class once. His teacher horrified me, uh, and we swapped back at recess. There was a set of twin girls that were in both of our classes, too, so we swapped back and forth. Braver than me, <laughs> they stayed through the entire day. Um, yeah. Okay, so, the CEO, how did you, how oh, did you, yeah. like, yeah, so was it because, is it age first? Is it beauty first? Like, how did you guys determine who became CEO versus CTO? So we always realized that, like, functionally, it's not like a, um, it's not a matter of having veto power or not. Like, we never play the I'm CEO, listen to me card. Uh, it, it's always been a 50-50 collaboration. And with our other business partners, it's more of a 25, 25, 25% collaboration. Um, but... You know, it started out of the idea that um, back when we, it was just him and I doing projects, uh, we I was the designer, he was the developer, then flip for every project. And there was this one project that ran way too long where he was the developer on and I was the designer. And we each got really good at those one things. Scope creep really happened here. So then in school, I was a marketing major and he was a web design and multimedia one. So it really panned out to be much more of a developer role. So he's been a big champion from the, he's a, the chief product officer here. We also, one of my other partners is the chief technology officer. So they play really nicely together. And, you know, it's just, I've been more of a scenario of the sales, marketing and design stuff. So that lends itself more towards uh, kind of the, the CEO type things. So it's, it, this was done, you know, uh, based on history. It wasn't based on a towing cost or who done. Coin no, no, no bet was lost. And I'll tell you, it took us about three years uh, to even arrive on these titles because we were never very driven by the ego. And yep. it became more, more of a, we don't 
we had just wanted to stop explaining like which random job title meant which. <laughs> so you will fix these ones. I'm just I'm fascinated because you know when it comes to family and uh, and you know you have the same parents and this ego gets into the way and and uh, there's always going to be this kind of brotherly competitive nature it seems like right that that fuels you guys it doesn't hold you guys back. All right, twins aside. Now, I have a few more questions around the things that you're doing. You have this, uh, I found all over your website, you talk about this, the Internet of Things is a software problem, right? So I'm very interested in, in this concept because right now, as, as beacons emerge into this world and into the lexicon and everybody's talking about beacons and I get a lot of people asking me, they say, well, where do I buy my beacons and how do I get into beacons? And, and, and ultimately, the beacon is the mechanism, but it's the software layer and I believe it very clearly. It's the software layer that is the important piece here and how to connect all the beacons and the human and then do something valuable. But, you know, tell me about your perspective of why this is a software problem. So I think you don't really need to look any further than what actually most devices are. And I think that a lot of devices, and I won't say unilaterally, a lot of devices now are very much commodity parts, which are stitched together in some sort of nice casing and nice software package. Not an iPhone, man. No, not no, an iPhone. No, 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 an iPhone is something special. And it's, I hope you're going to be making the plunge to the 6. The of 6 course. Plus, we actually, side note on this, we 3D printed the, the 6 Plus model and the 6 model just to see uh, which one. And the consensus is we cannot fit the 6 Plus in our pockets while seated. I can't, so, run, I can't run with it right here, right? So it I know. I know. Unless you need to get bigger biceps. So <laughs> the... Uh, so the, back to... The, yeah, big, sorry. Back to the back to the commodity, commoditization of these hardware devices. So really, like, the... The thing that's going to be a big difference is if you look at Nest, right? Like Nest is a beautifully designed product and there's no denying that. But like when you, when you pull in the sensors that really help it do its job, it's, you know, the temperature, it's motion sensors so they know who's in front of it. And all of those things don't exist solely in a Nest and they can you know, be, exist in other devices which can help inform. So this whole notion of the Internet of Things is the idea that data can be shared freely between devices and we actually look at it too like people because it matters who's using the device it's not just in what context the device is being used so we very much look around and you know beacons are a good example there's innovation to be had in the beacon front but at the end of the day it's it comes down to battery life and there's really not or maybe adding more sensors in there's not really a tremendous amount of innovation to be had when you think about it as just a little Bluetooth chip that emits around it. So you see all these people basically puffing up around the idea that they're beacon companies, and then I think what we'll see is it'll shrink back down. There's some ones that are doing it great. There's Estimote yep. is a great one. Um, you know, Qualcomm's putting some some nice contenders chip, in there. Yeah, the gimbal uh, beacon, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and then uh, Radius Networks is certainly doing a bunch of good stuff there. But yeah, it's really coming down to the innovation is starting to be um, more rapid on the software side because hardware is really long cycle. Yeah, what, what, but I mean, when you look at, uh, you know, the, I just, I'm in the middle of this uh, book called the Zero to One, um, which is really about this, the fact that, that a lot of companies have lost this innovative component, right? They're just iterative. Um, so zero to one is basically around innovation, you know, like uh, it's, um, 
it's it's the innovation piece and then one to infinity or one to n is basically globalization so you take the idea and then you you replicate it and you look at silicon valley and probably parts of boston right now as well and new york and everywhere around the world and they're just trying to replicate you hear this all over the place like we're the new uber we are the instagram of video we're this we're this and and the innovation doesn't happen in fact a lot of hardware innovation isn't happening a lot these days but we're starting to see a resurgence of that so w when you start to look a little bit forward for what you're doing i mean how do you um accommodate for you know this ebb and flow of going from software as the innovation to hardware as the innovation back to software back and forth i mean you're gonna have to go through this many times in this life cycle many times you know for a successful business so for us it's basically um yeah and here's the thing though we view it all as nozzles that you can swap on and off okay because if we, we continue to look at Robin and our role in this whole thing to be the ultimate concierge between all the stuff that gets involved. And the stuff that gets involved in an office are the people, the devices, and the software. The attendance software that tracks who walked in and out of the door, the devices which are showing your presentation on screen, and uh, you know the people who are actually interacting with all this stuff. So as long as we realize that our role is not to necessarily be the thing that powers the devices or be the thing that the, all the software runs on, but can more reference and refer to on how to best serve the people around it, that's a healthy way where, you know, even if, let's say, Bluetooth, or let's make up a fictional thing, Red Tooth comes out, right? That would be okay, because it would just be swapping out some nozzles and the logic stays the same. Um, that's why people like Ift are really good examples. They can just basically integrate, and they're more concierges than... Uh, you know, a Dropbox to email. Uh, do you think? But do you think that the revenue is there for those kind of companies? Like, Ift is amazing, right? I use it to to automate uh, much of what I do, but I don't spend any money on it. And and uh, so there's a balance between you know doing something that's good and doing something that's good for your pocketbook, right? And I think that Ift does amazing things. And uh, and at some point, maybe I figure I'll figure out how to pay, but I don't even know if they charge. So you know, there's a point in time where you can you, you kind of max out in the ability to charge there. And then the, these these hardware companies that are out there, like the Nest, that that sell something that, as you said, is is pretty simple, right? Elegant interface, but selling it at a premium, which is four times the cost of a typical you know um, thermostat in your home, um, or their smoke detector. So do you think that? Do you think that, uh, and, and then replicate it, and look what Apple did at the time we're recording this, Apple just pre-sold how many, 4 million mm -hmm. iPhone 6s? You know, basically, that's like $3 billion in revenue in 24 hours, right? So is there a scale challenge here when you, when you're, when you talk about software uh, for the Internet of Things, whereas the hardware seems to be, the right now, people killing it with hardware? I think hardware is great as a, as a caveat here. We have some great uh, incubators all throughout town um, that do this. I just think it's an ingredient and it's not the only thing that Internet of Things. I think Internet of Things has kind of become like a true Scotsman's fallacy. It's like, you know, I, I went to an Internet of Things gathering and everyone thinks it's something different. And, you know, there's people who think that it doesn't involve the Internet at all. And I just, you know, I'm, those, <laughs> those are people that I have brief conversations with. So. There is quite a bit that can be done 
in terms of monetizing on the software side. And, you know, look to if they just recently announced they're doing a lot more in the Internet of Things space of being that concierge between yeah. devices. Yeah. And when you look at it like that, you know, that's a pretty compelling thing. And there, if you look at the future, and this is kind of our philosophy, the future is going to have buildings with APIs and that you can build apps on top of and sure. install apps onto physical locations. The space around you is going to be an interface. So the idea of all of that stuff requires hardware. So, you know, with the Apple Watcher, you've seen the Mayo, which is the thing that knows what your muscle gestures yep. are. Imagine being able to approach a screen and then gesturing, and it knows who you are because of the software and what you're doing because of the software, but the hardware is feeding those interactions. So if we believe that that's the future, and we do, uh, you know, that you'll have APIs and apps on buildings, then there's a lot of ingredients and you can't discount either one. Do you, do you think, and I love that, uh, you know, the, the way you describe that is exactly the way that I feel about it as well, the, the philosophy. But I have to ask contradicting questions. Sometimes they yeah. pain me, right? But um, I, I think of these things as like uh, the Internet of Things operating system, IoT OS, right? That's kind of wh where my head is quite a, quite a bit these days. And, and, and um, you know, do you, do you see, foresee a time where there is something as as simple as the operating system for the IoT. So basically, you bring in a box into your house or it's built into your house or built into your building and it runs, for better word, lack of better words, like Windows for the Internet of Things, right? So it's a pervasive 98% install base. Do you see something like that coming down the road? Or is it going to be a I jumble? I think there's a case to be made. I think that if you look at their stuff like Nest and Samsung have partnered up to make Thread, which right. is basically, right. it seems to be largely circled around protocols and how to speak to each other, so yeah. like a common language. I think really that thing already exists because it's called the Internet. And the Internet is really what all these devices are trying to get to. And then it's what the language they speak once they're in. And, you know, that's the part that's being negotiated right now, not necessarily... Um, a central operating system. And I think that that's what so many people are trying to do right now. There's actually very few that could in a meaningful way with the adoption. And I think it largely comes to the hardware manufacturers at this point. Yeah. So do you think that IFT could become that? Do you think that they are positioned, whether they knew it or not at the time when they were building it out? But if they, if they continue down this path, do you think that something like IFT could be um, a pretty dominant and powerful uh, cloud-based Internet of Things operating system because of the way that it can connect? I think that, like, the interesting part about IFT, and this is the thing I'm hesitant to use operating system, it's a hell of a concierge and rules engine, which I really think is what a lot of stuff breaks down to. You look at stuff like Jasper, which is, you know, they're, they power, like, Tesla and a bunch mm -hmm. of other big inventing machines, which yeah. is probably the coolest one. That's a good example of like integrating at the hardware level and then powering everything. I think that a lot of the things that we're saying that are all these devices should talk to each other solutions are really just rule rules engines like if. And I think if you think of the rules engines, if is like V1. Yeah. So do I think I think that there will be a future where you can go out to the store and buy a device and it'll say if it's compatible on it or some sort of there will be something um, so that you, you know you can tether it into a larger ecosystem. But 
I don't think that from the device manufacturer level, it's going to be a core thing that runs the device itself. Yeah, that's interesting. Eh? If compatible, yeah. I would love that. Because, you know, early on in the day, you know, when IFT emerged, it was, uh, you, you would struggle to come up with ideas of what, what was a good recipe, right? So you'd, you'd be like, I could do that. I could download all my Instagram photos into a spreadsheet. That's great. But why in the hell would I, right? But you're I mean, starting to see it emerge now. That's the whole conundrum with the Internet of Things is that it lacks use cases. Why because do it? People just use it. And I think that, you know, what we realized is that a lot of these operating systems and these rules engines... Absent use cases, it's a lot like walking into a restaurant into a fully stocked kitchen and be like, you can cook whatever you want. People don't go to that restaurants to do that. They want a chef that can make them one of the things on a menu. Um, and I think that that's the problem with a lot of beacon proximity platforms and a lot of IoT solutions, traction aside. Yeah. And, and, and I, I suppose that it becomes use case. And that's bringing it back to Robin, is that you're creating that use case for for bringing all of this information together for an outcome, but it's always around a physical room. And then you branch from there, right? Yeah, because the idea is you need an on-ramp. And yep. you know, if we're being realistic, the average office, as we've found, doesn't really have that much of a concept of IoT right now, which, again, isn't a new phrase because there is M2M, machine to machine. But you know, the average office might have a nest and now I use average loosely, but like a tech forward office might have a Nest, some sort of Philips Hue light bulbs, Chromecast slash Apple TV, and then maybe some sort of smart lock. Do those need to talk to each other? Well, then we're going to get the same smart home narrative we've been getting all yeah. day. Yeah. So we're not quite there yet on the device side. But so that's why we started with people as the device, as the connected devices, because if the people can interact with each other, See, just by being there, then we're we're off to the races as soon as we add devices in. It's it's fascinating. Your approach is fascinating because it, like when we talk about the philosophy of of IoT and and the way that you build your product based on that philosophy, uh, the approach, as I said at the very beginning, is drastically different than than everybody else is talking about. Is and because we're in that phase right now where everybody is starting from IoT and working outwards and what you guys are, 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 you took a different approach, which is not hardware, which is human based and the needs of the human in a, in a small hyper niche area. And then from there, once you get them using an app, for example, to, to do that, then that's the battle is won. Then you can, and, and if it's part of, of what they do every day, if it's part of their habit, then you can start adding things in that actually extend the value of you guys inside of those offices. It's like the Trojan horse, right? It's and that's something that we actually take very seriously. Like the internal uh, marching order here, aside from like the, you know, does this add headache or take away headache, yeah. is uh, whatever it takes to let people be present. And I think that that's funny because it plays on a couple different angles. But we even did that back in the event space because, you know, a lot of people would show up to an event and then they would be look, immediately look down at their phone to take pictures and everything else. And that's why we were really hell-bent on the idea that, like, if we do this right, the space around you will be the thing that interacts. You leave your phone in your pocket. And that's what we have so far. Phone stays in your pocket, walk into a room, we're good to go. 
I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I, I definitely, Sam, I want to, I want to stay in touch with you as you go through this process to, to validate what it is that you're doing. You've got your seed round, um, and, and you're starting to, you've made the transition from a, a basically a consultancy, a, a, an agency into a product company, uh, focusing on one piece of software. I'd love to have you back on in six months to talk about what has happened over those six months. Would you be willing to do that? Deal. All right. Um, the other thing that I want to know about is uh, you're in Boston. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs in Boston. There's a great little um, mobile IoT, whatever you want to call it, kind of um, scene emerging in there. Um, and you guys, close to the ground, always have uh, really cool new applications that you might be using on your phone, for example. Is there anything that you're using? You know, is there a favorite app that you're using right now that you'd want to share with uh, with the uh, the Untether folks? Is there anything you can think of? I think, okay, so obviously I'm not going to be stereotypical because you guys are probably very in tune with Product Hunt at this yeah. point. Product yeah. Hunt is, you know, completely on another level. So yeah. is Slack. Um, Slack is amazing. The, the ones that I am the biggest champion of uh, around my friend circle, one is obviously Venmo because yeah. everyone needs to square up. Yeah. And then the other one, which I'll say selfishly, I'm looking through my phone right now. That's the best way uh, to do it. Drizzly. Drizzly, yep. Yep. What's is Drizzly? That one. Explain Drizzly, it. Drizzly is um, delivery alcohol. And it basically <laughs> turns, it treats alcohol uh, and liquor stores uh, like pizza places. So basically, there's not a Drizzly employee delivering. There's an actual employee from the store that goes out and delivers. So come on, it's that's great, amazing, and it actually—I don't know—in in at least in Boston, uh, I know it's launched in a number of cities. It feels a lot like Instacart if mm -hmm. you've played around with that, and it comes out to be cheaper than the average like liquor store that I would walk to. So uh, that Drizzly. changed the game for me. D R I Z L Y. Uh, great bunch of guys that work over there. Is that a, is that a Boston-based company? I believe so. Okay. Um, I know that there's. I know some some of the investors are local, and I've and I've met a good amount of their team locally. So that's great. Either and that or they're uh, nomads, and they end up here a lot. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's the only place that will allow booze to be delivered in Boston. What um, what's so great about Product Hunt for you? Uh, it feels. So back when, you know, people were first exploring what could really be done with like website design and CSS and everything else, CSS galleries and website galleries were really this big deal um, to help people realize exactly how far we could push this thing. And now it feels like Product Hunt is a good way to just be exposed to new things on a daily basis in a way that without editorial um, that maybe, you know, major tech news uh, provide it's it feels like a very focused thing um i'm certainly you know it's still about 50 50 for me the average product on there as to whether or not it's actually a product because you know there are ones that it's like you know they're they're little fever projects of 48 hours that don't necessarily end up anywhere but i think it's very cool the uh the interaction it's gotten from the actual founders yeah. which i always like 
And that's when you know there's a little bit of something there when the founders chime in. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated by Product Hunt as well. Uh, last question here, Sam, and then you can get off of this episode. I told you, there's no short stories. There's no short episode on Untether.tv. Uh, I bleed you until there's nothing left. Um, but what, uh, what what company out there is fascinating to you? Like, uh, is there a company that you look at with uh, such high regard that you wish you created or you want to emulate? Oh, that's actually a good one. So I ask I ask people that all the time. It's like, what company do you wish you founded? Yeah. Um, that's probably where I got the question from. <laughs> so I, I think that like, the most recent thing that's gotten me really excited, I think are both, and, and you know, I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. It's like, there's very few things that I actively, I get excited about and then keep, hang on to. And I'd say that both, um, you know, Uber was that for me back in the day. Um, I think Instacart is really one of those things for me right now. Um, and I would have had a lot of fun with that. Um, and then Sonos. Sonos. Honestly, it, Sonos is one that I think is amazing um, because they own it. Like in a, it's like a micro Apple if you think about it. Sure. They own the software, they own the hardware, and it's just a delightful experience. Um, so Slack, Sonos, and Instacart, I would have loved to have founded any of those. Yeah, good choices, man. Good choices. Like Sonos is interesting because they're basically like the Kleenex of of sound, right? Like uh, they've got that brand. I mean, in a good way. Like you, you know, Kleenex owns the brand of Kleenex, but everybody calls tissues Kleenex, right? They so, are hitting that point. Yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, there's not really good contenders, at least in at least in my view. No. So I live or die by them. I outfit all my stuff with it. Oh, uh, those are good ones. Yeah, and I, Slack again. I come back to that. It's such a simple beautiful elegant experience right uh that blends everything if you haven't tried slack it's amazing that blends everything from the way that we interact on a social network by hashtags and and it's simple right it's the simplicity of that interface that it's amazing but then when you really get into it the power of that the integration capabilities it becomes like the ift for uh for group work right and that's the thing that really gets me revved they're right now the way that they're scaling is basically getting more and more products and community involved by basically yeah. opening up their Open stuff up. and that's like a really friendly i love that concierge model yeah and i pay for them so it's one of those things that they've convinced me that it's worthwhile enough for us too yeah man those are great companies man i, I didn't expect to spend that much time but thank you sam for for sharing opening up your uh your screen to us so to speak <laughs> um I, i'm out of questions did i ask every question that i should have is there something that i missed I think you got him. Uh, every single one. Done. Nailed. <laughs> Nailed it. Sam, where should we send people for more information about what you guys are up to? Uh, I'm going to point them to robinpowered.com. Okay. That's uh, kind of the home base for us. Robinpowered.com. And uh, you guys still um, operate a pretty uh, a, a decent blog, right? Uh, I saw some great stuff that Zach wrote about uh, about the uh, Internet of Islands. Um, like, where's yes. that blog? Uh, is that uh, uh, Can they get that on robinpowered.com? Yeah, the Robin Power blog is pretty well updated. The Internet of Islands thing was actually one of our, before transitioning over to the Robin Power blog, it's on Build Internet, has some of our more legacy stuff. Okay. We actively update the blog. Well, it's still, it's well ahead of, that post is well ahead of its time, and it's, you know, it, it's only, it's almost a year old, that post, but... Uh... Um, man, this has been great. Sam, I can't thank you enough for spending this much time and, uh, you know, opening up like you have. And this has been a great conversation. I hope you've uh, found it that way as well. It was excellent. So thank you so much. 
All right, we've been speaking with Sam Dunn, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Robin. Go to robinpowered.com, robinpowered.com. Go and check them out. Um, and if you use the service, I'd love to hear from you. If you're going to use the service, if you just found out about it, man, it would be the greatest thing. What's your Twitter account, uh, Sam? At S Dunn. At S Dunn. Sweet, so simple, so small. I if know, you found this, well, it's good. Did you? Yeah, as done. It's better than Rob Woodbridge, boy. Um, but if you found this valuable, please reach out to Sam at S Dunn at S Dunn on Twitter. Let him know that you heard about his company here on Untether.tv. It's the best way that you can do it. It's a currency for me, and uh, just you know, tweet out your appreciation for what Sam has shared here, and then go to RobinPowered.com. Sam, I thank you. Folks out there listening, watching, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, I thank you for coming back and making it through this episode this long. I know you found tremendous value. We'll see you again next time on Tether.tv. Thank you, Sam. Thank you.